0: Welcome to Advent, the only season of the Christian year where we're looking forward to how God is going to end the story, longing for what is yet to be when Jesus returns. During this season, as Pastor Chad said, we'll be looking into the Old Testament book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, for hints of what God was planning to do. And we start today at the beginning of Genesis not quite at the very beginning, at chapter 3, midway through the story of Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. If you're joining us online, the scripture reference will continue farther than what you'll be able to see there, but I'll read it. Um, We're going to read just chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 20. Hear these words from Genesis. The man said... The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. When the Lord God, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. and he will rule over you." Then skipping down to verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we're centering in, focusing in on just one verse from this passage. The few words of God's message to the serpent in Genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity God says to the serpent between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Thinking about that verse this week and living with it a little bit through the lens of Advent reminded me of the first time I ever really recognized that the Virgin Mary was once a girl like me. I think I was about 10 or 11 years old, and I learned that Mary was probably not so very much older than I was at the time when Gabriel made his startling announcement. Do not be afraid, Mary. You will be with child and will give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So imagining Mary, the mother of God, as a teenager stopped me in my tracks for a little while. And that's when I remember experiencing my first pang of anxiety about ever becoming a mother. Because I knew the words of Genesis 3 that, follow, that are part of our text today. I knew those words from Genesis 3.16. I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. And some of us listening in this room today or joining us online are living with more than just the first pang of anxiety about what childbearing might involve. Perhaps the pain of childbearing is the most acute when it's absent. The fact that Advent is about waiting in the dark for the birth of the light of the world is visceral for you. Because maybe you're going through infertility or reeling from a failed adoption or you're longing for children that you would have loved to know but know that now you never will. You're anguished over grandchildren whose needs you name all the time before God because that truly is the most powerful thing that you can do for them. And all of you, no, the pain of childbearing east of Eden. So, how, we could ask, might Mary have been so open to this plan from God? Because she too must have had some fear of the vulnerability and the pain and the alienation and the stigma that bearing Christ into the world would cost her. Yet she also trusted the God she knew. The God who had called her and her yes to God allowed her to be a participant in the birth pangs, quite literally, of a new creation that God was bringing into the world. So as we focus on these verses from Genesis 3, we need to imagine a layered horizon with sequential mountain ranges. And the near horizon is the way the Israelite audience might have listened to this story down through the years. And in the far horizon is the view of Christians post-New Testament looking back on this verse from Genesis through the life and ministry of Jesus. Before the serpent ever approaches the woman and her husband who is with her, before they believe the lie that God is holding out on them, The two of them live in a garden made to meet their every need. Genesis 1, which we didn't read, but you can go back and look at it later. Genesis 1, 28 to 30 describes what God's blessing in this place looks like. It is a counterpoint to the curse that we just read about. So in God's blessing, there are fruitful lives and meaningful work and plentiful food, There are seed-bearing plants as far as the eye can see. There are untarnished expectations for children and family. No fear of childlessness. No fear of pregnancy complications. There's wise stewardship of God's good creation. There's no competition or shortage of food. No survival angst. Direct access to God's presence where every physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual need is completely met. We live after, in a world full of the consequences of sin in and around us. And so this picture of the world, pictures for us a God beyond all praising, in a world beyond all imagining. And that's before in the passage today, we get a picture, we start to get a clue about what life looks like after. After the man and the woman listen to an adversary they don't recognize. After they bite into the fruit of the tree. After their willingness and ability to trust God goes awry. And so there they hide, naked and afraid, in the garden listening for God's approach and getting ready to give their defense. And so God, the judge, comes to these two. The sentence he pronounces first is not on them, but is on the serpent, who started the whole thing to begin with. Because you've done this, God says to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And as the woman stands trembling in her fig leaves, God turns to her. I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And where there once was just delight and joy in bearing children, now there's pain and angst. Where there once was ease and joy in marriage, now there are power struggles because enmity has entered the world. On the near horizon, the family survival of the offspring of this woman, whose stories are told in Genesis, the survival of that family line is under threat. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, starts the human descent into violence, and he murders his brother. By the days of Noah, the thoughts of the human heart are said to be only evil, all the time. And Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel also face survival threats in infertility. Jacob and his family live under a famine in Canaan. And there's enmity. Enmity. On the slightly further horizon, a mountain range back, enmity in the world is what God's people encounter generations later when they're oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, when they wander through the desert as refugees, and then when they live in the promised land, only later to be expelled from it and exiled due to disobedience. So it would be reasonable for those subsequent generations to ask, why? Are things so hard why do our children die why do we eat our bread with anxiety and the narrator of Genesis just might lean over and say because there is enmity an ongoing struggle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman as sons and daughters of Eve we are in a long-term cosmic exchange of heel strikes and head strikes with a power that's opposed to the goodness of God. Christian tradition has held that evil is the absence or the privation of good, so our enemy can't construct anything that's really lasting or really real, but nevertheless, he's got the power to suck the goodness and the life out of everything. In her book of sermons and essays about Advent, priest and author Fleming Rutledge writes, I think most of us realize that in our time, we have crossed some kind of boundary into new territory. The Sunnysiders have been dragged willy-nilly out of their safe places. We're beginning to see more clearly now that no office, no school, no church is truly safe. That the internet has greatly increased our capacity to share lethal information. That there's something ugly lurking in human nature. And she goes on Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. No one is free from the power of sin and death. No one has the power in himself to help himself. No one can say to herself, Well, I'm not a murderer, so I'm not so bad. Rutledge goes on to quote Primo Levi, a survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp, who says, the human species has the potential to construct an infinite enormity of pain. And that pain is the only force that can be created out of nothing, without cost, without effort. To cause infinite pain, neglect, or negation is enough. It is enough not to see not to listen and not to act so as new testament christians we take sober analysis of our own hearts we try to resist evil we try to turn toward what is good in the manner of jesus insofar as we see the good because in the far distant horizon of genesis three fifteen, we see something else coming there is the promise of the triumph of an eternal king who is great and good, and we want to participate in that kind of kingdom. We are the people who see with the eyes of grounded hope that there will not be this relentless struggle forever. For in the seed of the woman, from Eve all the way down to Mary, has come Christ, the Son of God. And so through this farther horizon view of the New Testament and beyond, the final outcome of the struggle between the woman's offspring and the serpent is assured by the first coming of Jesus. The early church and the later audiences heard in Genesis 3.15 the first whisper of a gospel. Good news. Already at the onset of human rejection of God, the interpreters saw God had a plan to restore the full blessing of his presence and his goodness to a people that he loved at great cost to himself. Satan, sin, and death would indeed issue a deadly heel strike to the Son of God, born of a woman. But the Son himself would also crush the power of Satan, sin, and death, and put all of his enemies under his feet. So back in the garden, when God could have answered human disobedience with a curse in the same way he sentenced the serpent, it is noteworthy that God's sentence of consequence and judgment is not a curse. The blessing is not totally gone. Nope. In the near horizon view, childbearing is still and all good that ability is not revoked, still a blessing, even though now it will be harder. It is still a gift whose goodness is not overcome by the real angst that we travel through. And in the farther horizon, beyond the immediate reference to the birth of human children, there is the promise for the woman to participate in fighting against Satan, sin, and death. Through her, sin entered the world. But God doesn't say, "Uh, I'm going to have to come down there and handle this myself all on my own. No, he will come, and he will work with her participation. God grants Eve the dignity of being a part of this redemptive work, painful as it might be, to carry the promise of the child yet to come into the world. In 2005, a contemplative Cistercian monk from Iowa named Sister Grace was getting ready to give a talk about Mary. And as she thought about her teaching, she decided to pick up her crayons and her pencils and over a couple of afternoons thought through this talk while she drew. And what came out of that thinking and artwork is a beautiful picture that's now on the internet. It's called Mary Consoles Eve, and you can look it up. She is not an artist. She is not a self-professed artist, but she drew this work, and it's on a yellow background with um, an arbor of fruit in the foreground. And centered there are Eve and Mary. And Eve is shrouded in long hair, and the serpent is coiled up one of her legs, and she clutches the fruit to her chest and looks down. And Mary's there too, and she stands up, And she's about eight or nine months pregnant. And with one of her hands, she's holding the the other free hand of Eve on her abdomen. And Sister Grace says that this picture has really moved people. And she says, I hope that this picture communicates the way Christ is present in our encounters, even when we don't see him. The picture is of Mary and Eve, but Jesus, of course, is there too. He is, in fact, at the very center. If it was just a picture of an unpregnant Mary with Eve, it might be lovely, but the presence of Jesus in the picture is what gives it real meaning. I always think of this during Advent, that even before his birth, Christ was already among us within Mary. So many Advent texts talk about awaiting the coming Savior, but he was actually there for nine months before that Christmas night. And now, too, we live in the now but not yet of God's coming kingdom. So the promise has been carried forward through all the generations. We ourselves are spiritual descendants, physically born of human mothers, of course, but born again through the Spirit of God. And like the first disciples, like the women at the empty tomb, we, too, bear the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. I need to live with that many days. Just as surely as Jesus came the first time, so surely he will come again and put everything under his feet. So as we wait for all of our fears and hostilities and sins to be bound up in his good and gracious reign, we also pray, come, Lord Jesus, amen. Lord, you know what we carry with us into the Advent season. Help us never to forget that in addition to all of the other things, we also carry your life in ours by your spirit. Help us to be people of hope because of your promise.